0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker
1: meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Ruth, and I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) nervous but very happy tonight you know it was the big book that was my sponsor (laughs) i couldn't find a woman around aa (laughs) so i had the big book thank god anyway this is a wonderful meeting (laughs) just imagine all of us i love alcoholics (laughs) and there's a lot of you here and it's been wonderful being with Searchy and Dr. Bob's son, <laughs> Bob. I knew his wife, Betty, who passed away last year. Lord have mercy on her. She was a great AA, too. <laughs> and then Jim telling us about the, the Oxford group. It brought me back to when I came in first in 1948. I was very fortunate because I came in, in the Bronx, New York, and Bill was, <laughs> you get a, a hand for everything these days. <laughs> but the geographic deal, you know, when people ask me about uh, questions about beginning AA and everything. A lot of it happened, of course, in Akron. But I was in New York where I thought that was the action was, (laughs) because Bill and Lois used to come to my meeting very often. Now I read in the book, Lois Remembers, which tells about their moving from Clinton Street up to, I think it's West... West Bedford or Bedford Hills. Anyway, it's Stepping Stones, their home. I can, it brings back wonderful memories. At my group in the Bronx, very first night I went to a meeting, I noticed a, a box was on the front table. In fact, I saw something else. I saw this thing that I thought was a box of (laughs) checks. It was our big book, but it had kind of a wild cover, a paper cover, you know, in the beginning. But at any rate, uh, I finally realized I was at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting when the chairman got up and he said, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And if there's anyone here who's interested in this new program, he called it, that was 1948, he said, you may speak to the gentlemen with the white carnations in their lapels. Well, they were just five or six fellows from the group who, back then in 1948, they had gone to their jobs in the morning and come home, had their dinner, and got dressed up to come to their AA meeting at night. No casual clothes or anything in those days. And as a matter of fact, it was like a secret society back then. I realized when I heard him say I am an alcoholic that I must be in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting because I had read about it in the papers and uh, I secretly wondered what they were like, but... I didn't, well, first of all, I didn't think I was an alcoholic (laughs) or belonged there. But anyway, these five or six fellows from the group walked across the stage. That was a school hall up in the Bronx. And uh, two years before I came in, that group had started. It seems the, the pastor of that church had an appendectomy in Fordham Hospital, and he was put in the room with a good old friend of mine who has passed away. Uh, Joe Hennessy was a New York detective, and they even write a newsletter about Joe Hennessy these days. <laughs> he was quite a character. Anyway, he was in the hospital, and the priest was put in the room with him. And the priest said to him, My my goodness, fellow, who are you related to? Are you related to the governor or the mayor? I never saw anybody get so much company. (laughs) All men. And Joe Hennessy answered and he said, no, Father, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, you can imagine that poor priest, while he was there for ten days or so recovering he was bombarded with stories about Alcoholics Anonymous. And when he was leaving after that period, he said, I want you fellows to meet in my school hall. And uh, he gave them the night of Wednesday night. Well, at one point in my story, a lot of you have heard my story. I called that rectory to find out. I thought there was a priest up there who could help anyone who was drinking a lot. A priest had told me that in confession. He had said he had met a man from Our Lady of Mercy Parish who he thought could help me with my drinking problem. So I called the rectory one night, and I got a lady's voice on the other end of the wire, and I told her in my usual fashion... (laughs) I have a problem. My husband drinks very heavily. (laughs) I understand you have a priest up there who can help him. She said, no, no, not that I know of. She said, I'll let you speak with the pastor. So she put Monsignor O'Leary on with me. And, of course, he had had these two years of experiencing AA, you know, in his school hall when I told him about my terrible husband, (laughs) and he said to me, we have no priest like that. He said, we have a non-religious organization, and they meet in the school hall every Wednesday. He said, now you can bring your husband up, but if it's yourself, why don't you come? (laughs) Oh, I didn't fool him. (laughs) And that's the way I wound up at that meeting. Now, as I say, in the book, Lois remembers, she mem- mentions a couple of men who belonged to my group. She tells that they helped them move from Clinton Street, which was foreclosed, you know, moved them up to Bedford Hills. So I think that's why we saw so much of Bill and Lois. We did. Every few weeks, they would come to speak to us. And on some occasions, Lois would say to the ladies, well, "If you ladies would like to hear a little of my story, we can go into this other room. And we would, the, all these ladies who were mothers of alcoholics, wives of alcoholics, sisters of alcoholics, nobody was ever a drunk but me. <laughs> they would all move into this other room and I would, go right in after them, I love to hear Lois speak. And she would say at that time that people were trying to get her to form a family group. And she said, I'm too busy. So it was quite a bit later that Al-Anon was formed. But what I want to tell you about was what it was like then in the early days. As I say, it was like a secret Deal. We had some literature, but not too much. And at my first meeting, I was told about a big meeting, meeting that was held the first Friday of every month in the Engineers Auditorium down in Manhattan. And so when I got a chance to speak with my husband, I said to him, Would you take me to that meeting, John? Because he worked downtown. And uh, I said to him, first Friday in May we could go. So he said, okay, we'll have Mom, mind the kids. You come down and have dinner with me, and then we'll go over to the meeting. So we did that on the first Friday in May of 48. And when we walked into this huge hall, I said to him, let's sit down front. This was his usual answer to me. I don't have the problem. We can sit in the back. (laughs) And so we sat in the back. And then, right in the same row that I was sitting in, this tall, kindly-looking gentleman walked in from the back of the hall, and he sat down a few seats away from me. And he put out his long legs, and he put his briefcase on his knees. And I, I looked at him, and I poked my husband and i said, John, I think this is Bill Wilson. He said, oh, you would. <laughs> he thought I was crazy at that time. But anyway, it was Bill. And he got up, he was the only speaker that night. And he gave a terrific talk. We listened, you know, and even my husband said, oh, he can't speak. <laughs> but, But anyway, after he spoke, the one side of the room was all men, and there were five or six women, including me, at the meeting. And we all sort of went to the side, the left side, and everybody got up to thank Bill for his talk. And so I was on this line with the ladies, and when it came to my turn, he shook my hand, and then he said, You're new. And I said, Almost three weeks. <laughs> so he said to me, have you found a sponsor? Well, I had asked every woman I met looking for a sponsor, you know. Are you a member of the group here? Oh no, I'm writing a thesis on alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I'm here for my aunt or somebody. Nobody was a drunk. <laughs> But anyway, I said to Bill, no, I haven't found one. So he had both my hands in his He said, make sure it's a woman. That was his creed, you know. He said, woman to woman, man to man. But then a highlight of the evening was, he kissed me on the cheek. (laughs) He did it with all the ladies. (laughs) But it was wonderful. I hated it. I hated to wash it, you know. (laughs) But then I got to meet Bill quite a lot because I had these two good friends. Uh, They were two men in my group who lived in the Salvation Army, and that was quite near my home, and they would pass, and they'd stop in, have coffee. They used to like to sit with my children, and they'd have... Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with the coffee. and uh, But they were very kind to me, too. They took the older boys to the circus and to the rodeo. You know, they were very kind people. Well, one of them, Joe, got a job in a a club on 46th Street. He was the short order cook. So he stopped in to tell me one day, and he said, If you come down, he said, I think it's an AA club. And I said, why don't you come down with Virginia? Virginia was my friend. When I went to my first meeting, the lady that I sat next to uh, asked me at some point, well, we had a woman speaker at my first meeting. And what she did when she got up to speak, she said, you know, I was told to drink beer to put weight on. She said, a doctor told me that about 18 years ago, and she she held up an arm that was like a matchstick, and she said, it doesn't work. And, <laughs> and I've been drinking it for 18 years. So, <laughs> when she said that, I laughed, and I turned to this lady, and I said, does this go on all the time? And she looked at me, and she said, Are you at your first meeting? And I said, Yes, I am. She said, You sit there, dear. Sit right here. Uh, Don't leave. I'll be back. And she went looking for the only female member of that group at that time. But that was Virginia. And she was on a slip with the chairman. (laughs) And they had taken the treasury. (laughs) don't change too much. (laughs) But anyway, Virginia eventually came back to the meetings, and so she was the closest thing I had to a sponsor, the Big Brook and Virginia. She had been in AA long before I appeared on the scene, and so she and I went down to the 46th Street Clubhouse where Joe got this job, And uh, we had, we ordered a big sandwich, and he gave us the best, you know. He said, I'll give you a great lunch. (laughs) And we're sitting there enjoying it. And she said to me, that looks like Bill in the back. So, uh, sure enough, it was Bill Wilson sitting in the back of that club. It was an AA club. And uh, he was writing as he was always writing. Our literature, and you know, everything. But anyway, I would never have had the nerve to go back at that point in my sobriety to greet him. But Virginia had chutzpah, <laughs> and she took me back there, and she goes right over to Bill, and she pokes him in the shoulder and said to him, how do you expect me to stay sober when I get these fits of depression? So he said to her Virginia, I just got over one. And then they went into a lengthy conversation back and forth about certain symptoms that you could indi- would indicate you were on the verge of those depressions and that occupied about ten minutes and then Bill said, Well what else will we talk about? And at that point People got wise that that was Bill back there, so a group of people would come back and converse with us. He was so very agreeable to this, he would put his feet up on the table or desk, whatever he was writing on, and he'd say, okay, what will we talk about, you know? And then on one occasion, the one fellow said to him, You know, Bill, I brought a fellow to his first meeting last night, and no one said the right thing. (laughs) Nobody said what I thought they would. So Bill said to him, You can't tell what will bring a man back for his second meeting. He said, You never know what will strike home at their first meeting. He said it could be a quote from their past he said, it could be anything that brings up a memory. He said, it could be a crazy hat like that one Ruth is wearing. <laughs> well, at that point, I'm bristling my back. I thought it was a beautiful hat, but, <laughs> but he remembered my name and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> at any rate, that's the way he was he would he would joke with us and and just just discuss anything you know when it came to the wonderful thing that we have, the general service organization. When Bill started to talk about that, of course, it was Bill and Dr. Bob who formed this wonderful idea, and what we would do after listening to Bill giving us little drunkologues all the time, we'd poke each other and say, yeah, there he goes with that stuff again. You know, and how wonderful that they formed this deal to keep our wonderful program going. As a matter of fact, I'm jumping around in my story, but I did want to tell you Um Sergi and I spoke together today because Sergi always talks about the traditions. And when I went to my first closed meeting, uh, I was surprised when I walked in because there were just two tables set up and two men sitting at them. It happened to be a business meeting, and they were all men, of course about 26 guys or so, and me. And uh, they were taking everyone's information, their name, address, and phone number for the group. And I got online with these guys, and when I came up to the desk or table, the fellow said, your name, address, phone number, and I gave a talk. He said, how long have you been sober? Well, that, I was so proud. I just straightened my shoulders and I said, 50 days tomorrow. I was so proud. The fellow behind me gave me a poke in the back and he said, 49, baby, 49. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, yeah, he's right. (laughs) So... But the following day, I had a knock on my door, and one of the men from that group came to me, and uh, he said to me, "Ruth, how are you?" I said, "I'm fine." He said, "Are you sober?" I said, "50 days today," <laughs> and he had my first 12-step call. But what I wanted to tell you about is that at that closed meeting, we were handed a huge paper. It was a draft of our traditions. And it said on the top of it, please read these over. If you want to, if you think some of them should be changed, make the changes. Make any comments you wish, and then hand it into to the secretary. Well, I took that paper and read it, and I thought, this is good. 49 days of sobriety, and I I could have changed one of them, you know. (laughs) But I didn't. (laughs) That was, that was 48 and they were voted in at the convention. I think it was in Cleveland in 1950 that they were voted in. Sergey told us about that today. But anyway, I know, I know how Bill felt because he would he would sort of break down and tell us his feelings, you know. And, uh, of course, our big book had already been written then, but he used to talk a lot about Rockefeller (laughs) and how disappointed they were, sort of, (laughs) when, you know, they he visited the Rockefellers and everything. And at one point, they started this business of having a dinner every year, And he used to tell us that at one of those dinners, he said, what do you think that Rockefeller gave us one thousand dollars? So he said, immediately about seven billionaires got up and walked out of the room and left us ten bucks (laughs) each. He said, they figured if he had all that money and gave us a thousand, ten dollars was enough. Because the Rockefellers did preach, this doesn't require money. The Alcoholics Anonymous Program. Actually they needed money even to answer the letters that were coming in from the big book. People were writing and asking, you know, what it was like and everything. But at any rate, knowing Bill and being around then, I feel I am very fortunate. But most of all on that first when I had 50 days and I had my first 12-step call, Pat Murphy was his name, Lord of mercy on him too. He took me, I had my three children then, I had my boy six years old and one of four, and then I had a new baby, an infant. But uh, I was taking them to the doctor that day when he came to my door and said he had a 12-step call for me. Well, I postponed the doctor's visit, and I got my neighbor to come in and to stay with the kids while I went out on that 12-step call. So Pat surprised me by bringing me downstairs and saying, it's Mary so-and-so, and she was a neighbor of mine a block and a half away, and I knew her whole family. She had a large family, and her youngest was going to the kindergarten that I was registering my son in. So I'm walking across to Mary's house and thinking, Oh, good Lord, the whole place is going to know Ruth is an alcoholic. (laughs) But I kept walking. I knew this was what was part of her program. So I got to her front door, and uh, her teenage son came to the door. And I said... Kevin, I would like to see your mother. And he said, oh, you can't see her, Mrs. Man. I said, she's sick, isn't she? And he hesitated a while and I said, yeah. I said, I have the same illness, Kevin. I'm an alcoholic. So he said, oh, okay, you can come in. <laughs> so he let me in, and Mary recognized me, but she was very, very sick. And Pat had said to me, I think she might need a hospital, and if she does, I'll have to borrow a car to get us down there. We had Knickerbocker Hospital, and it was a five-day stay there. My big job then was to tell her family about it because people didn't know what AA was like at all. I had to describe to her, especially her husband, that he had to pay $75 for five days for Mary to go to the hospital. But in that hospital, she would be treated as if she had an illness. She wouldn't be, as they were then, thrown into a city hospital or into Bellevue, where they didn't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. But here, she would be treated as if she had this illness or Malady, as Bill used to call it, of alcoholism. It was Dr. Silkworth, of course. He was there from 1946 with his darling nurse, Teddy Rowan, who was a doll. She was Miss Reingold of (laughs) 1920-something. She was a tall redhead and a lovely lady. But anyway, uh, I brought my pigeon in, pigeon or my patient in at least, into Knickerbocker Hospital after Pat had borrowed a, ho- a car and taken us down there. Knickerbocker Hospital had one floor which was devoted on one end to the ladies and on the other end to the men. And so Teddy Rowan said to me, it'll take me a while, and you a while, she said, to get this lady admitted to the hospital. So she said, you go out in the corridors there. Whoever you meet on this floor has to be in AA. It was open only to sponsors and AA people. So I, t- she said, it'll take you a while, so go out. So I went out to the corridors there, and walked the corridors and I stuck my hand out to everybody I'd see. my name is Ruth what's yours you know. so I came up to this gentleman and I said my name is Ruth what's yours well he took both my hands in his and he looked down at me and he said Silkworth and when he said that I was thrilled I had read about him in our big book you know and I, I, I was embarrassed, but he said to me, how long have you been sober? <laughs> and I said, 50 days. <laughs> and the tears poured out. I was so grateful for those 50 days. He said, that's a wonderful beginning. So, and so it was, thank God, because I worked with him later. He was such a, a great guy, really was. Everyone who came out of that Knickerbocker Hospital would tell you about some little thing that he would say to them that they carried with them for the rest of their lives. And so after I was sober about three years, I guess it was, Colonel Towns invited about 24 of us, AAs who had been sober and going to meetings, And he said he had a plan. First of all, he served us these lovely little tea crackers and and cookies and everything, and tea and coffee, and uh, he was, I used to say he was part of the 400, but they don't even talk about that anymore, but he was a socialite. And so it was a very lovely thing, not like just going to a, a meeting, you know. But he said he had this plan in mind. He wanted to establish a committee for Towns Hospital. He said, when someone comes to my hospital, I'll ask them, are you interested in this new program called Alcoholics Anonymous? And if they are, I'll put them on a certain floor. And I'd like to have a lady and a man from AA come to visit them. So uh, we had to form that committee, and we did that night. I volunteered for Monday, and another fellow volunteered for Monday. So before we were leaving that night, he said to me, what time are you going next Monday? And I said, well, I guess it'll be around 2, 2 or 2.30. But I said, you don't have to be there when I'm there. I just visit the women. You visit, he said, I know but I want to go when you're there. So this gentleman arrived when I did on a Monday night, Monday afternoon, and he said to me, I wanted to ask you, what do you think I should say to these guys? So I said to him, first of all, they, some of them don't even know how they got here. <laughs> Probably. They were carried in, or, you know. I said, you have to, Think of your own experience, I said, and just tell them about yourself. So uh, he's listening, you know, and I said, bring one piece of literature, whatever one you like. I had with me the one that's called At Last AA because I loved that piece of literature. But anyway, after I got home that day, in the mail there had come a list of who was on the committee. And then I read that this man that well, I'm telling him what to do, you know, he was a well-known surgeon in <laughs> in New York, and I'm telling him what to say, you know. But to tell you the truth, when you're in AA a while, you think you know everything, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and I was just full of information. <laughs> Anyway, I thank God every day for it. I thank God for knowing Dr. Stilkworth. And when I joined the Island Heights group, which is about six years ago now, these fellows down there, they were, I used to say, they became my groupies. (laughs) When I'd go to speak, they'd come with me and... Clap hard when I need some, some encouragement. But anyway, they even took me to Dr. Silkworth's grave, which is in Long Branch. He's buried in Long Branch, he and his wife. So that wasn't something that I was looking forward to, but I did see his grave. But he was a great man, and as I say, I'm just feeling lucky to have known these people and to have known the way they felt about AA. It was, it was only after, oh, I was in a while. Well, first of all, in the beginning then, there was a lot of 12-step work. And it was one-on-one. There weren't many people who could afford that 75 bucks for five days, you know, first of all. Because I went to places in the Bronx that, you know, were uh, pretty poor. And then I was in the position where I had to take my kids. You know, I had one gal who, if I knew if I could get to Parkchester <laughs> before her liquor store opened, she'd be sober. <laughs> so, so that meant I had to get Tony, my baby, and get, get him rigged out in a Leggings that they had to wear then, and boots and everything, you know. And then ride the subway or the crosstown bus to Parkchester and get there before her liquor store would open. And I'd get her, maybe I'd bring her back to my apartment where I had to be there for the boys who were at school coming home. Anyway, I did a lot of one on 112 12-step work, and... It was wonderful. It was I remember looking up at all those buildings in the Bronx, you know, with all the apartments and thinking God, there's hell behind a lot of those apartment doors. And if only I could get in and help them because of someone's drinking, you know. I knew what was going on in my home. Anyway and uh, this is has been a wonderful meeting <laughs> getting to know searchy and dr bob's son whom i know anyway we were often together <laughs> it it's an inspiration to me and it just makes me feel wonderful to be part of it i know a lot of you have heard me a lot <laughs> and i thank you for putting up with me <laughs> I just feel very lucky that I knew those people. I I loved Lois because she was so easy to talk to. And uh, I know, I thought I was the first one who asked her if she, uh, I, I asked her about that motorcycle trip they took, you know, and I said, did you sit in that little cab on the side? Of the... She said, I did not. I drove and Biddle drove. <laughs> they took turns. She said, we needed that cab for our books and our clothing. So uh, that's the type of person she was. She was a take-charge person, and I always used to think that she looked like a 4-H kid who has grown up. <laughs> oh, my dear. I'm getting the message too. (laughs) I just want to thank you all for all you've given me. What would the gal my age do now if she didn't have AA? I would be lost. I have so many friends, and I feel as if I could call on any of you, even the people who were here tonight. Everybody helps me around. It's a wonderful life. And if you, if you're wondering whether you're alcoholic or not, don't wonder. Join us. It's a wonderful way to live. Thank you so much.
1: My name is Bob S., and I'm a member of (laughs) Al-Anon. I think I got here like most Al-Anons. I love an alcoholic. My wife, Betty, was uh, a recovering alcoholic who had 19 years of sobriety, and believe me, folks, for that I am truly grateful. (laughs) I think you can understand that. I think that uh, to be an Al-Anon, you're not necessarily an Al-Anon just because you're associated with an alcoholic. I think it requires some work on your part. I think I must live the steps. I think I must abide by the traditions. I think I must attend the meetings regularly, and I think I need to have a sponsor. And I do these things. And you know, part of our MME, both programs, is service. Uh, It seems important to me to tell you that I've been the GR and the DR, and I served three years with the West Texas Assembly. And a few years ago, I got a call from our central Al-Anon office asking me if I would consider myself to be a candidate for trustee-at-large for all of Al-Anon. And I prayed about it and talked to my group, and I seemed to have the education and the qualifications for which they searched, so I called them and said, yeah. I will be glad to be a candidate for trustee at large all of alanon. And guess what, folks? I didn't get it. <laughs> oh, don't we hate rejection?
0: <laughs>
1: but the point I want to make with you is that my program came to my rescue like it always was and said, Hey, whoever got that job was the one for the for the job was gonna do a better job than, than you would have been capable of doing. And maybe my Heavenly Father has something else for me to do. And I'm totally free of that. And that's what our programs can do for us. And I try to let my program do this for me most of the time. Although I've only been a member of Alamont about 20 years, I'm somewhat of an anachronism. I'm the only person still living that was present when the two co-founders of Alcoholics, met for the very first time at the home of Henrietta Siverly, Akron, Ohio, Mother's Day, 1935. My dad's Dr. Bob and my mom's Ann, and I rode out with my parents to meet with Bill for the very first time. My dad had come home on a Saturday night before Mother's Day with a potted plant, set it down, he was potted, went upstairs and passed out, And Henrietta was a friend of my mom's and said, Ann, there's a man out here that thinks he can help Bob. Bring him right on out. Mom had to explain that uh, Bob was in no shape to go anyplace, but she said, I'll get him out there tomorrow. Well, as we rode along, he had a terrible hangover. He said one of the worst he's ever had. And he said, okay, 15 minutes of this bird is all I want. But it wasn't 15 minutes and he and Bill went off in a room by themselves and they talked many hours. And then as a result of that meeting, at my mom's invitation, Bill came and he lived at our home all that summer. And this is the time that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was formulated. It was in the middle of the last Great Depression. We lived in a one-industry town, Akron, Ohio. They made tires, Goodyear, Goodrich, General, Firestone, Miller, Cyberlink. And people stopped buying automobiles, and they didn't need tires. And there was tier after tier of repoed cars in the garages downtown. The strong men on the street corners selling apples for five cents apiece. But people had more time for each other, and I think that was again was providentially arranged, because they it was very, very important that People communicate with each other, and they weren't as hurried and harried as perhaps we are today. I'd like to describe my dad to you. I think you'd have loved the guy. Dr. Bob was a tall, thin vermonter, had icy blue eyes kind that kind of could look right through you. He had gone he was a graduate of Dartmouth, one of the Ivy League colleges back in the east, and uh, I understand it was a drinker's Ivy League college. He fit right in there, and he'd worked out in industry a couple years and then come back to St. Johnsbury, Vermont, his home, and prevailed upon his dad to allow him to come out to Chicago and go to medical school, and he barely managed to get his M.D. because his alcoholism was progressive like it always was, obtained a coveted internship there at City Hospital in Akron. It was coveted because they had some advanced equipment, and he moved to Akron and married my mom after a whirlwind courtship of only 17 years. (laughs) Dr. Bob thought things over very carefully. (laughs) He had a wonderful sense of humor. When I brought my bride-to-be home, for the folks to look over back in the 1940s, uh my wife was tall and slender and, and dad looked her over and got me aside and said she's built for speed and light housekeeping <laughs> he he was the type of guy that didn't have a lot to say but what he said was very meaningful and i want to tell you his sex and hygiene lecture to me as a teenager he got me up in the bathroom one day and i thought oh i'm going to find out all about it now and we sat down and he said to me, flies spread disease, keep yours buttoned.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, my dad loved the slang of the day, not the nasty four-letter words, but if Dr. Bob were living today, he would be able to talk to you young people about weird now. And stroking and stuff like that. He loved that kind of language, even though he had a fine vocabulary. He went along on a pretty even keel, always pretty steady and slow, and, and uh, not, you know, not very flappable. And I think that that again was providentially arranged, because you see, Bill, his partner, was just the opposite. Bill was garrulous. Bill was a visitor. Bill was also a tall, thin Vermonter. They were born within 100 miles of each other. But Bill was a visionary. I think Bill Wilson could see further up the road than any person I've ever known. Bill loved people. Bill was a salesman. Bill's mood swung. He was either high as a Georgia pine or low as a snake. And these two guys fed together perfectly. They never had an argument. And again, I think that was providentially arranged by our Heavenly Father. Because, you know, folks, if any two of us are exactly alike, one of us is unnecessary. (laughs) I think that as near as I could tell, and I was a teenager at the time, these guys had two things going for them. They both had open spiritual minds and they had the desire to be a service to another human being. And that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about recovery. I'm going on the assumption that everyone in this room already knows how to be miserable. Okay. The first one was a young guy by the name of Eddie R., and Eddie had just been thrown out of his house for non-payment of rent with a cute little blonde wife and two stair-step kids, so they moved them all into our home, took Eddie upstairs and locked him in the upstairs where he'd be available as they got this knowledge. (laughs) Hey, you got to remember, folks, uh, there's nothing written. They're just trying to stay a page ahead of Eddie. (coughs) And Eddie was an agile young guy, and we had downspouts. And Eddie would open the second story window and slide down the downspouts and escape. And they had to postpone Eddie's recovery long enough to recapture him. (laughs) At one time, Eddie got as far away as Cleveland, Ohio, 35 miles, and called him up on the phone, collect, to let them know that he was going to commit suicide. But that he would give them time to drive up and witness the event.
0: <laughs>
1: well, when they brought Eddie back home and Eddie sobered up, he had some uh, mental problems that hadn't immediately surfaced, and he began beating up on this little lady to him he was married. And then he began chasing my mom around the house with a butcher knife. So we held a group conscience meeting. <laughs> And it was decided that the only thing to do with Eddie was for his little wife to take him back to Ann Arbor, Michigan and recommit him in a mental institution. And this was done. And my dad and Bill were crestfallen. Here's their first attempt to sober up another alcoholic. Total failure. But I want to tell you folks something. At my dad's funeral, 15 years later, a guy walked up to me and he said, Do you know me? And I looked at him and I said, Yeah, I know you. You're Eddie. And he said, that's right. And he said, I want you to know I'm a member of the Youngstown, Ohio, AA group, and I've been sober one year. So we don't know the result of that 12-step call, do we? We're only called on to take that hand that reaches out for help. That is, you know, I think the results depend upon our Heavenly Father's will and perhaps the zeal of the person receiving the message. But our part is to take that hand that reaches out for help. And thank God we don't have to be fully qualified to do it, do we? We go with what we have at the time. We go with what we have at the time. I want to tell you about somebody nobody knows anything about, and that's my mom. My mom was... uh, a graduate of Wellesley, one of the fine women's colleges back in the East, as you know, went there on a scholarship, and her great-uncle was the president of Santa Fe Railroad, and he used to take her around the country in his railroad cars. And it was very opulent, and, and uh, he, uh, he liked Mom, and they rode around together. So she kind of got to see the jaunty side of life. And she was uh, a school teacher, had led a very sheltered life, was very easily shocked until A.A., <clears throat> but we began treating these people in our home and it was wonderful this was recovery you know they bring the guy in the house and with the blank eyes and then pretty soon you begin to see a little twinkle and pretty soon you got a viable human being on your hands and it was fun my dad had a treatment for me take a new guy upstairs and say okay fella I'm going to give you a shot of whiskey, but I want you to take this little bit of medicine, and it was Peraldehyde. Very, very pungent, sedative, and he knocked him out from 24 to 36 hours. <clears throat> so when my sister and I came home from school, when we opened the front door and smelled Peraldehyde, we knew we'd lost our bed. <laughs> well, we didn't mind. This was a recovery, you know, and th- we were both teenagers, and this was fun. Much better than it had been. Recovery. And they weren't just overnight guests. You know, Arch T, who went on and 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 started A in Detroit State almost a year. They had a food recipe that they used. And I'll tell you about it. It was uh, canned tomatoes, sauerkraut. Now, Bill had an ulcer, and he thought sauerkraut cured everything. And Cairo syrup. I think you'll agree the early alcoholics were a hardy group. The early alcoholics were all men, low-bottom, middle-aged drunks. Kind of like what I see in this front row here. One woman came along fairly early in the program by the name of Elsie, but they caught Elsie doing a little 13-step work on Dr. Bob's examining table with Abe by the name of Mitch. <coughs> and, of course, the wives and sweethearts just went up in smoke. So it was decided that they should stick to the men for the time being, and I think Elsie set you gals back two years all by herself. <laughs> but thank God you're here. Well, Mom was the one that never lost faith that these guys could do something. You know, Bill himself said, Ann Smith is the mother of AA, and I truly believe this. Mom was the one that made the beds. Mom was the one that cleaned up the messes. And Mom was the one that cooked the food. And she was the one that answered the phone calls. And she was the one that made everybody have a quiet time in the morning that they might feel near to God. Mom was the one that invited Lois to come down from New York that summer, and Lois came down and stayed with us as long as she could. But she had to get back to New York. You gotta realize, folks, that Lois was the only one that had a job. <laughs> <laughs> AA wasn't an instant success, it was thought of as a cult and a bunch of nuts. And my mom endured the snubs, and we got kicked out of the Presbyterian Church on account of AA. And I never heard anybody getting kicked out of the Presbyterian Church, but we did. So it wasn't just a bed of roses. But she never lost faith in these guys. And in the early part of 1936, my mom organized a women's group for the wives of alcoholics, whereby in her loving way she tried to teach them love patience and tolerance. And you know when uh, Lois, our beloved Al-Anon co-founder, rode around the country to see if there was any interest in a program like Al-Anon, she found out that there were 64 groups in the country already doing it. Independent thinking had figured out that it was a disease that affected the entire family. At first, it was just a trickle. Then the media got a hold of it. You know, the Cleveland Play Dealer and then Jack Alexander's article. And the trickle became an absolute deluge. And the word got out that there was a doctor in Akron, Ohio, who could, quote, fix drunks. And they came in on the bus and on the train, dropped off by loving relatives. Dropped off by relatives who weren't so loving. (coughs) And again, I think our Heavenly Father provided the right person. Sister Ignatia was the admitting nurse of a Catholic hospital, and she and my dad prevailed upon the Mother Superior to allow them to start a ward for where people could be admitted with a disease of alcoholism. It was just the cot the flower room cot with I mean a room with seven little cots in it. And I often wonder what the drunks thought when they came to and saw nothing but flowers. <laughs> must have been pretty startling. But anyway, what I want to tell you is that that facility is still in that hospital. It's not the flower room. It takes the whole fifth floor. But it's in continuous service. And and as far as I know, it's a first-time alcoholic could be admitted with a disease of alcoholism. How did they do it? What gave me ideas? Well, Jim touched on it. Bill in New York City, my dad and mom and Akron, Ohio, belonged to an organization called the Oxford Group. And the Oxford Group had the four absolutes that uh, Jim quoted, absolute honesty, unselfishness, purity of thought, and absolute love. <clears throat> and we adopted some of that stuff for the alcoholic program. We had the alcoholic squad at the, at the, uh, early, uh, uh, at the early meetings, but it was inevitable that they part. They had a form of open confession, and they would. I used to go to some of these meetings with my dad and mom, and, uh, oh gee, they were so zealous, they scared me. You know, they were in your face. Are you maximum today? Well, I was just barely minimum, you know. <laughs> And I I wonder where I went, but I think it was perhaps maybe to get out of the doghouse. You can't tell by looking at me now, but I was not a constant source of joy to my
0: parents.
1: (laughs) But anyhow, I got to see that they had this form of open confession where they took a new guy up in the uh, bedroom at Henry Williams' house and bore in on him until he finally confessed what his problem was. So, it was inevitable that they part, but we learned an awful lot of things from the Oxford group. You see, open confession was not acceptable to people of the Catholic faith. And I don't know whether you realize it or not, but there are Catholics that drink. And the Oxford group uh, catered to the upper middle class, and believe you me, the early alcoholics were not upper middle class the Oxford group wanted publicity, and the alcoholics had already had all the publicity they wanted. So it was inevitable that they part, and it was a hard thing to do, but it had to be done. And the program has continued to grow. You know, my dad only lived 15 years, but in that length of time, he personally treated over 5,000 alcoholics, men medically and AA-wise, without charge. And I like to think of my dad as Dr. Bob. And the reason he had such good success is he emphasized the spiritual part of it. You know, there's a very, very strong spiritual thread through all of our programs. The thing they used was God's big book, too. They used the Sermon on the Mount. 13th Corinthians, and as you all know, the book of James, faith without works is dead. Those are the things that they used that have been uh, woven into the program. Betty and I attended the First International in 1950, and this is the one where they adopted the traditions. My dad was terminally ill at the time and uh, gave a short talk, and then we drove him back to his beloved Vermont for one more trip, and I wouldn't take for the caring and sharing that we had on that trip. My mom had died the year before, and he was very ill, and he was very lonely. And we brought him back to Akron, Ohio, and uh, I had a flying job out of Dallas at the time, and I had to get back to work, and I never saw him alive again. But what a wonderful time we had on that on that trip. <coughs> Betty and I attended the second one, the International, in 1955. Bill invited us down there, and this is the one where Dr. Sam Shoemaker and Father Ed Dowling gave talks, and it's in the book, A.A. Comes of AIDS. The chapter religion looks at A.A. These are the guys that loved The spiritual people that loved A.A. when A.A. wasn't cool. So we owe those people a tremendous debt of gratitude, too. Then Betty and I didn't... uh, Attend any more internationals until 1980. We were out working on our case history. Betty and I were party animals. We loved to drink and we loved to dance and I dag sure wasn't telling anybody that Dr. Bob was my father. <laughs> but once in a while we'd get invited to a AA meeting. Somebody would find it out and we would go and have a great time and then as we left we'd say, oh, Good for them. They needed that. And all of the time alcoholism was entering our home. Now Betty put her dad in a drying out place in, in Albuquerque in the in the nineteen forties and he and another guy started AA in New Mexico. So if there was ever two human beings that should have recognized alcoholism, it was Betty and I. But we didn't. We were unique. We were different. When it finally got bad enough, as it often happened, a young guy called up Betty and said, Betty, we're starting a, a group for Alcoholics Anonymous here in Nokona, Texas, the little town in which we live. Uh, will you come? And she said yes. And she went there, and she hung on by her fingernails, and, this, and the founding day of that group was Betty's sobriety day. She never had another drink so long she did. You know, even knowing what we did, we didn't just jump into this AA thing. We began to touch it up a little bit, and I like to describe it this way. These two uh, men loved to hunt up in Alaska, and they would hire an aviation company to come in and and uh, drop them down on the lake and then pick them up a week later. And the little plane came in, and the hunter said, Oh, we're delighted to see you. We've had a wonderful hunt. we got three moose. And the pilot said, Three moose? And you two guys and me and this little plane? And one of the hunters said, Don't worry about it. He said, we, I came in with a plane just like yours last year. And we had three moose, and what he did was he got a further run. He taxied up the river and got a longer run for takeoff the pilot thought, well, I've got to try it. I'm young with the company. And sure enough, that's what he did. And it took on off and it starts back to civilization. But the little engine is overheating. And it loses power and way out in the wilderness it crashes. And one of the hunters drags his buddy out from under the plane and kind of dusts him off. And his buddy said, oh, where in the world are we? The other said, you know, I think we're within a 100 yards of where we crashed last year. (laughs) And that's the way our life was going You know, trying the same thing over and over And expecting a different result But anyway Betty took off with the AA program And I could see she was running off and leaving me She was learning some things and I wanted to learn them. So somebody said to me, well, why don't you join Al Anon? And I thought, why not? I don't mind joining the auxiliary. So I got in my car and I drove over to Gainesville, Texas, 40 miles away, and I show up at my first Al Anon meeting and I look around and I'm the only guy. <laughs> I immediately got mixed emotions about Al Anon. I always like to describe mixed emotions this way. It's kind of like the feeling you get when your teenage daughter comes in at four in the morning with a Gideon Bible under her arm. (laughs) But those ladies were patient and they listened to me. You know, I was the, the rock that had been holding the family together, bloody but unbound. And I thought, oh, I really laid a trip on those gals. Well, you know, these things are revealed to us as we can handle them. A couple of years later, I talked to Anne, one of the ladies who was there, and she said, oh, yeah, Bob, I remember when you came to that first meeting. After you left, we held a meeting.
0: <laughs> we
1: said, boy, there's one that's not going to make it. <laughs> And another thing was revealed to me a little later on. There wasn't a darn one of them that offered to sponsor me either. But anyway, I thank the Lord for those good women. And our lives went along just great. We live in a little country town, 3,000 people. And our programs were parallel. Betty was AA and I was going to Al-Anon. We were prospering. Uh, well, I'll tell you how it was. We put carpeting in our bathroom. You know how good that feels on your feet on the cold winter mornings? Well, we liked it so well, we ran it on into the house. <laughs> My recovery. I had to learn that uh, sometimes a relationship was 90-10, sometimes 10-90. What's the difference? It didn't have to be 50-50. I had to learn that the past dies hard, and we must peel away the past in order to reveal it. I had to learn that everything I have learned in this program can be taken away from me immediately. I can lose every bit of it. And one of the most profound statements I ever heard anyone make at an AA conference was a lady from Albuquerque, and she said this, and I want to pass it on to you. She said, the person I was will drink again. Wow. So if you allow yourself to slip back and become the person that you were, if you're alcoholic, that person will drink again. If you're Al Anon, if you allow yourself to slip back to the person you were, you'll be sick again. So we have to constantly strive to keep our program green and learning because it, our lives depend on it. Our lives depend on it. But what the beautiful rewards there are. What beautiful rewards. It gets better and gets greener as you go along. A year ago, my beautiful Betty died of lung cancer. I had dragged her around the country trying to do something about it for a year And finally she said to me, Mom, I'm not afraid to die. I know what you've been trying to do for me, but I release you. And I said, okay, Betty, if that's what you feel about it, I release you too. And so I got to be the caregiver of my beautiful wife. We were married 53 years. I got to not only tell her I loved her, I got to show her. And that, to me, was another benefit of the program. This was a privilege. It wasn't a burden. It was a privilege, and that's what our programs would do for us. And another thing, when Betty died, my friends in both groups, AA and al held me in their hands until it propped me up till I could stand alone. And another thing, and I pass this on to you, I think every meeting I ever attended to, every 12-step call I tried to make, every phone call that I took, every convention perhaps, everything that I did, I built a little reserve of restraint. And I think that happens to all of us. Something that you can call on when times get terrible. When bad things happen to you, and... You know, these things do happen to you. It's just, it's just a matter of accepting life on life's terms. So why do I come back? I come back because you got me rid of the squirrel cage thinking. Were any of you ever raised in an alcoholic home? I was raised the first 17 years of my life in an alcoholic home. Anybody else? Okay. Let me touch on that just a minute. I think, this I talk only for myself, that the thing I have to constantly watch out for is not to be a victim. Not to adopt a victim mindset. You know, here I was raised in an alcoholic home and all the screw-ups I did and all the bad things I did and all the things I was supposed to do and didn't do, they're not my fault. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. And this works. But there's a price that you pay for that mindset right up front, and I constantly must keep that in mind. And that price is you must continually increase the resentment towards somebody or some group of people. And regardless of which program we're in, we all know that resentments are the one thing that will destroy us, absolutely destroy us. So I only speak for myself and I say I don't intend to remain forever frozen in the role of an injured adolescent. And Thank God our programs show us not to be victims but to be survivors. Sure we get here with some scars but we're survivors. I think one of the big benefits that I have received and I hope you have too. Is when I can be completely honest with you. I'm not talking about cash register honest. I'm not talking about Rolodex honest. I'm not talking about resume honest. I'm talking about totally honest. When I can do that and let you see me just as I am, warts and all, and you do the same for me, we can have an instant intimate relationship. And I know of no other organizations in the world that can provide that. And what that does for me and perhaps for you too, that, that keeps away, drives away loneliness. You know, I think a lot, most people go through world only. But we have that ability to communicate with each other one on one, knowing that we've been through the alcohol thing together. You know, alcohol in, in my lifetime, uh, ours was, Three things. Fun, fun and problems, problems. Now that's behind us. That's behind us. So we've reaped the benefits. These are happy programs, right? Serious programs, but they're happy programs. We're happy, joyous, and free. And one of the, the thing that uh, I think we get our true happiness from and I'd like to uh, quote Dr. Albert Schweitzer, the famous humanitarian who used to be a world-class organist, you know, and then went and became an m. d. and then went down in the darkest Africa and established hospital. Dr. Albert Schweitzer said, "I know not what your destiny may be, but this one thing I do know: that those among you who will find true happiness are those who have sought and found how to serve." And isn't that where our happiness lies when we have the opportunity to serve somebody asks us for help? Thank you very much.